I uh, come before you today with very little preparation. <laughs> um, Greg's not feeling well today. Uh, he didn't eat. Some, he ate something that didn't agree with him. So, um, last minute call. Somebody had to step up. So, you're stuck with me today. Um, I think I would entitle this uh, this meditation "Unity is a Promise." Um, but first, let me pray over it. Lord. Um, come before you uh, lacking in general. And um, I ask, Lord, that you would fill us, fill me with your word, fill me with your spirit, and help me to communicate uh, your truth and your word to us today and give um, ears to hear and eyes to see this morning to everyone in the congregation and those joining um, from the webcast. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, our main text will be um, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. We'll work around Ephesians, then maybe jump around the Bible after that. I don't know how many of you have uh, what you might call life verses, um, verses that just that God has illumined to you, and they are core to your understanding of him and your spiritual life, that every time they come up, it just makes you just fall over and weep and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I got a few of those, and this is one of those. Um, I was uh, convicted because of Stephen's message a week or so ago um, about 2 Timothy 4.2. Uh, he talked about, um, which is preach the word, whether in season or not, um, or in season or not, whether time is favorable or not. I have it memorized in like a number of different uh, translation, so I get them confused. But um, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good and sound doctrine or teaching. Um, that's one of my life verses. And so Stephen was sharing, and he said, every single one of you should be able to stand up at a moment's notice and give a, give a sermon and teach about, about the scriptures. So um, I've, I heard the call this morning. I was like, you know what? I was convicted a couple weeks ago. I might as well j- jump in. <laughs> but so... Your sermon's bearing fruit, Stephen. How about that? <laughs> but let's read uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, and I'm reading in NASB, sorry, if you guys are reading ESV, it might be a little different. Implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors or shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The analogy is a picture of the body. Okay, There's a number of word pictures in Ephesians uh, that Paul employs to describe the church. And Greg's always made the comment of Colossians is uh, primarily about the Christ of the church, whereas Ephesians is primarily about the church of Christ. So to see the church in all of its dimensions and uh, uh, multifaceted you know, ways and constitutions, that is the point of the book very much. And it's a prophetic destiny of who the church is supposed to be, if you will. We're called sons, we're called beloved, we're called his glory, we're the body, we're his workmanship, we're fellow citizens with Christ, Um, we're a holy temple and a dwelling of God, we're children, we are light in the Lord, and we're the army of God, utilizing the imagery of the chapter 6 and the armor of God. And there's a few others, actually, Greg's, uh, that was a uh, Bible study I went through many years ago, but um, those are the ones that I wrote down in my in my Bible here. Uh, there's a few others that have been plucked out over the years, but I want to camp out on a couple, specifically the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. Christ is a perfect, glorious head. He needs nothing. He has no lack. He is perfect in his glory, in his manifold greatness. We as the body, however, have a lot of growing to do. We are not perfect. We are destined for that level of perfection and glory, but we have not attained to it yet. There is work to be done. But the grace of God is for it. In fact, Christ gave gifts to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for the work of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and for building up the body, that every joint, every sinew, every nook and cranny, every organ of this body would be working in perfect concert, perfect unity. Unity is a demarcation, therefore, of maturity of this body. Just as you're, I'm not a biologist or a doctor or anything, but Anybody that's studied anatomy knows there's a lot of systems in place. (laughs) There's a lot of things going on. And if any one of those gave up, you're not going to do so hot. Right? Same principle. That's the imagery that Paul's employing. And they didn't have modern medicine and so forth back when Paul was talking about it, but he recognized the complexity and the unity. And that's what the church is destined for. That is how he's drawing out the identity of the church in this passage. And there are mechanisms within that system, that complex system, that actually provoke it to greater growth and maturity. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, but also all saints, all members, every individual point supplying what its proper function is required for unity. That's pretty cool. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 
is the other section. This is a different analogy, but they build on each other. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, the family of God. Could be another way of understanding that picture. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Um, the family of God is a house of God. It is a temple of God. The body of Christ is a temple, a dwelling of God. All of these images overlap and help us to begin to understand how God thinks about the church. How the apostle was um, describing it is the word of God. It's inerrant. It's the mind of God. We have to let our minds be renewed according to these standards, according to these pictures. We have to meditate on these. We have to ruminate is the word, <laughs> um, continue to roll it over in our hearts and our minds to be renewed in our minds and thereby transformed into these images, into these things. The building analogy, again, is a complex structure, but it's masterfully crafted. This is not a, this is not a, a, a lean-to. <laughs> it's not a, not a, pitch a tent in the wilderness type of thing. It's, it's a permanent structure. It's a lasting, enduring structure that will not fail. We are, as living stones, being fitted into this. And again, the gifts that Christ gave to the church are such as to help each of us find our place in that structure, find our function and our fruitfulness in that structure. Philippians 2 would be another good one. Because when we talk about having these thoughts and these pictures roll around in our minds, we are therefore becoming more mindful or uh, aware of the mind of Christ, the mind of God, the mind of the Spirit, the thinking of God, the way he thinks, the way he perceives this is exhorted throughout the New Testament, but one of those other sacred passages for hopefully every Christian, but certainly me, is Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude or mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Having the same mind and thoughts and attitudes and expectations as Christ does is a call of God on the church. 
We're to be his image bearers. We're to be his people. We're to be his body and his building, his dwelling, his house, his family. We're to bring his culture, his thoughts, his intentions for all of creation to bear in all circumstances. That's pretty mighty calling. But how, therefore, does God think about every aspect that we would come up against? Our relationships, our children, our work habits, our, um, our, uh, our relations to the world. Our expectations, actually, instead of the relations to the world, our expectations of the future. Our expectations of the future are completely and utterly guarded, guided, set, even. We have to become aware of them and desire after them. Marriage supper of the Lamb is the end of time, right? <laughs> That's the end of, uh, of this age, the church age, if you will. It's then the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a, what's called a telos or an end goal. It's, that, it's the teleological vision of the church. Um, every major thought train, every uh, world religion and demonic religion or thought process has an end goal, a utopian vision, a teleological prescription for their way of thinking, their way of going to life, and so forth. Christianity is nonetheless. We indeed have a teleological end goal. hate to use the word utopian vision because that almost sounds uh, foolhardy, but it is that. It is Christ and his church forevermore. And we are right there in the middle of it with him. That's powerful. That needs to shape our minds. That needs to shape our expectations. That is the telos. And um, that's, but some of those dynamics of that relationship between Christ and the church, a mature church with a mature head, there are promises involved. Unity is one of those promises. So what is unity? Okay. Um, it's not the only promise, but it is one that sometimes we don't talk about a lot. But I think it, it's helpful to consider the dynamics of what unity would be. Unity of mind, of heart, of spirit, under one God, one spirit, one hope, one calling, all this. It's very singular, isn't it? <laughs> Another synonym for singularity is purity. There's no mixture. It's a very pure, very clean very single faith that we have. It's not convoluted. It's not compl- it, it is a little bit complex, but it's not convoluted. It's not, um, it is not mingled with anything else. That's a pure vision. Unity, being a singular word, a word denoting singularity, um, is a promise, therefore, of the church. And there are many passages that talk about unity. Um, John 17, the uh, high priestly prayer of Christ. If you've ever spent any time with uh, Ray Nethery, our uh, blessed grandfather in the faith, (laughs) Um, you know that unity of the body of Christ is a major heart posture. It's a major purpose of his entire life before God. He stresses John 17 very heartily anytime I've ever hung out with him, and it is and I agree completely. <laughs> I think that's that, it's that monumental. It's that important. Because in the high priestly prayer, he, Jesus Christ prays to the Father for oneness. 
for them to be one as we are one. He repeats it multiple times. Um, I do have quite a bit of time. I could read the whole, <laughs> the whole chapter. Um, or I could just, I guess verse nine, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Uh, skipping around in this chapter, I'm sorry. Again, lack of preparation, sorry. Um, let's start in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. In them and you in me, I in them, excuse me, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Couple thoughts. First off, Jesus is asking his father for very specific things. How surely will God the father, who is the perfect father, give to his perfect son everything he asks? How assuredly will that take place? I don't know if there's, can you go higher than 100%? Is that possible? <laughs> That's how surely. There is a confidence. There is a firm foundation that what Christ is asking of the Father will be done. Absolutely, 100%, take it to the bank. Live your life according to it. Spend your life according to it. That's how confident we can be. Unity is one of the aspects, if not the primary aspect, of this passage. It's that the word would be in them, that he would be in them, that God who fills Christ, because Christ is now in us, that God would be in us, and that we would be with him where he is also, seated in heavenly places, reigning on high forever. Amen. That's what we're after. That's what Christ is asking for. That's what will happen. That is the telos. That's what we can expect in time. That's what we are working towards. That's what we are dying to ourselves for. That's what we are serving one another for, is God's glory filling the earth in the church and Christ in the church being perfectly unified on all fronts, every time, all day long, forevermore. That's Christian maturity. That's unity. It's a promise. Unity of the church and with Christ is a promise. Take hope. Be encouraged. There's a stark distinction, though, that does actually come out in John 17, verse 9. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
Something I hadn't actually considered in the context of unity until I read, uh, I think it was Primeval Saints. Um, James Jordan brought it out in the Tower of Babel incident. They were unified in thought and purpose, right? The Hebrew talks about um, one tongue and one language. That's how we translate it. But the Hebrew actually kind of refers to it as um, one language and one lip is the word. So this word lip is kind of funny. Um, it actually denotes their ideology more than it does something that's coming out of their mouth. But they were unified in thought and purpose, and their language was the same as well. So they had this unity. They had this unity that they were engaging in that was building itself up as the Tower of Babel under Nimrod and the demonic uh, one-world government that he had um, and worship of himself and so forth, building it up against God. So God came down and confused the lip, confused the ideologies, confused the language such that unity was destroyed. Unity was not possible anymore. That's Genesis 11, it's Tower of Babel, but what that is, is a promise to the church, because that is the way it's always going to be from here on out. The world systems are not promised unity. They are promised confusion and inheriting the wind, so to speak. They don't come together and conquer the whole world. Because every time they come close, God will confuse them. He does not promise unity of the world. He promises unity of the church. And the church, as she matures, will become more and more unified in the earth. We'll consider that in a second, what that might potentially entail and look, at, look like. But think of, the, think of the world again. This is the difference between um, what you could call a pessimillennialism and a hopeful eschatology, a victorious eschatology. Um, a pessimillennialism would say that the world's going to get bigger and better and it's going to one world antichrist and he's going to come and unify the languages and the, the currencies and everything's going to be destroyed. That was the left behind book, really. I mean, honestly, that's very much what dispensational premillennialism taught me <laughs> when I was raised in church. That was what was commonly thrown around and it is 100% unbiblical. That's not real. <laughs> that's as fiction as it gets. Because unity is not promised to the world. A one world antichrist, a one world unified system of demons and powers that overcome and overwhelm the church, not real. <laughs> it's not a thing. It won't ever be a thing. Our hope as Christians, our teleological vision, I can't come up with a better word for that. <laughs> Sorry, I wish I had a better, simpler way of putting it. But our teleological vision and our one hope in Christ does not, it is not time-stamped, it is not um, gauged according to what's happening in the world. It's not influenced by that. A time-stamp, if you will, an actual barometer for how far the church is getting could easily be the unity of the church. It could easily be, therefore, if unity is present more and more and more, maturity is present. Because that's moving towards the teleological vision prescribed in John 17 by Christ in his prayer, by Paul in Ephesians 4, by us all having just the one mind, Philippians 2. Romans 12, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our hope, 
what can be called a post-millennial hope. It's an expectation of thorough victory in all realms and all times of the world by the church inheriting the earth. The world, the systems of this world are not promised inheritance. The church is. The meek will inherit the earth. We inherit the earth as we are ready to, re- to steward it. So on and so forth is the church as let's call it even, I love this title of a book. I've never even read it yet, but I love the title. Uh, the church, the pilgrim of the centuries. It's the church marching out its destiny through the centuries. We're not bound by time stamps. We're bound by standards, qualitative standards of maturity and unity and faith and knowledge of the son of God, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ so that Christ's body would be just as full and ready to receive the head at the appointed time. Last, I can spend all day just rolling this around, you know, and so forth, because it's, that vision should possess us. It should absolutely draw us into not just hopeful expectation, blessed assurance, all of those things, certainly, but motivation. It should zealously possess us to do what he has graced us to do. What he has purposed and prophesied and declared from the beginning is our destiny. That's what we are to be about. Any hindrance to that should be absolutely laid aside. Any besetting sin, any instance of rebellion, any um, uh, worldly pleasure or desire that even closely hinders that vision, that pursuit, that journey that the church is on and will continue on until completion should be cast aside. Now, do I do that perfectly? No, of course not. (laughs) I definitely have plenty of hindrances in my life, and I'm sure you do too. But that's the call, though. It's to put aside the hindrances. It's to lay hold of that that with which he laid hold of us. For that purpose, he laid hold of us. We should therefore lay hold of him and the grace supplied accordingly. Another verse that would be starkly, um, another concept, an idea that you could even call timestamp would be Isaiah 9-7. Okay, these are, if we're promised unity, if we're promised maturity, if we're promised completion and inheriting the earth, Isaiah 9-7 gives another aspect of that. Let's roll over there real fast. It's a really famous passage because Isaiah 9 has been uh, encapsulated and promoted in the, uh, the uh, uh, Messiah work by Handel. So every Christmas, we generally will find ourselves singing and thinking of this passage. You could start in um, verse 6, because this is what will spark the hallelujah chorus slash uh, Messiah work. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. His kingdom is perpetual. That's stated multiple times. But the increase of his kingdom will have no end. It is a perpetually increasing kingdom. May our hope be found in that confidence. It will not stagnate. It will not retreat. It will perpetually increase in the earth. As the water covers the sea, so will the knowledge of the Lord, or the glory of the Lord, fill the earth. That's our time stamp. That's our promise. The zeal of the Lord is making it happen. He is sovereignly working and moving us in those directions. We just have to get on board. We have to stop trying to hinder it. We have to mortify the flesh by the word of God, by the graces he supplied us in the covenant community and walking in the light, by powerful experiences with the spirit of God and worshiping and getting our demons kicked out of our lives, getting all these hindrances kicked out of our lives, getting our inner wounds healed, forgiving for the first and final time <laughs> and always every, every other time <laughs> to truly let his grace remake us into his intended church. That's fun. I just, I don't know. I can't get enough of that. I can't get enough of thinking about that. I had another thought. I'm trying to remember where I wrote it down. Sorry, again, my notes are just scribbled here a minute ago. Oh yeah, what would this unified church in time kind of look like? I don't know if you've noticed, but the simple word denomination <laughs> literally denotes partitions, parts, separations. That's not a, sing- that's not a word that really embodies singularity. <laughs> doesn't really embody unity, does it? The very word denomination and that we identify ourselves as segments and parts is actually very unbiblical. It's really a, it's a, it's a shame. It's really a sad. And there are lots of good reasons that we've propped up for why that should be and justifications that we've come up with. Well, that guy doesn't believe this way. That guy doesn't believe this way. Therefore, I can't, you know, possibly have any unity with them. There's no way, not possible, you know. It's not that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one creed, one, you know. It's not like that. I just, trust me, these, these issues are definitely denominationally valid. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, that's not the way the church will look in that day. It doesn't mean that we're all going to be the same. It doesn't mean that we're all going to just act and step and do the same mechanical functions. There are things that God does honor and preserve in his unity. A diversity in unity. Cultural, language, um, dare I say, skin color. We're not all going to be the same color skin. <laughs> it is highly probable that there will be multiple races before the throne of God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people proclaiming the glories to God in their own tongue, in their own beautiful way, in perfect 
symphonic unity forevermore. Let that possess your mind. Let that stand in stark contradiction to the ways of the world that seek to pick apart every difference and set every difference against each other. That's the ways of the world. They're not promised unity and they're operating very accordingly. We are promised unity and in Christ, the dividing wall has been broken down between Jew and Greek, slave and uh, free man, male and female, Scythian and barbarian, which I probably couldn't even identify who he's referring to there. But whatever, every denomination, every way that we would separate and distinguish ourselves, that dividing wall has been broken down in Christ. His blood has accomplished that. No longer are we an ethnically defined people. We're a people defined by common faith, common confession, common Lord. Um, I think of other things that might have to be reckoned um, before that day. The distinctions between, let's say, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Western Protestantism. The distinctions there are denominated. They are separated. What the church would have to do is a journey to see that reconciled. Not completely abolished per se, but being able to recognize the good in each one of those traditions, the the godly things that are going to remain, and being able to cast off the things that are not of full purity of knowledge of God and holiness. That's a journey the church is on. They're going to have to probably reconcile those things. Oh, and you could even throw in the global south because it's starkly distinct as a tradition now. And it is overwhelming lots of areas of the church, especially in South America, Africa, Asia. Where else? Is that a, those are the big ones. But I mean, the, the amount of people in the church that are under that level of tradition is growing exponentially every day. Great guy to help you understand that is uh, Philip Jenkins. Um, the, the coming... Coming Christendom, is that the, or the next Christendom? The next Christendom, I think, is that it? That's the, he's a demographer. Okay, he's a demographer. He studies people groups and stats and statistics and stuff. He wrote a fantastic book. I wish I remembered the title. Um, the Next Christendom is what I think it's called, Philip Jenkins. Um, it's a pretty statistically laden book, so that can be dull in many regards, but what you can see very clearly is the increase of Christ's government and peace in the earth. The increase of his kingdom is perpetually such that you can count the numbers. The numbers bear it out. Now, does that mean every number is qualitatively holy and pure and full of maturity? No, but it does mean that it's expanding and spreading just as he promised. And it's our mission as the church to continue to bring in all of the nations, all the peoples apportioned faith and bring them into maturity. That's our building up of the body. Making sure every joint is supplying its proper function for unity. You can be about this for the rest of your life. Your children can be about it for the rest of their lives. And your grandchildren can be about it for the rest of their lives. There's that much work to be done. The Antichrist isn't coming to set up his one world government this generation in such a way that it's going to abolish or nullify or halt that work. 
You're welcome. You're set free from all that nonsense. <laughs> don't, let that, don't let that invade your thought. Any time that comes up, it's not biblical. It's not what the text bears out. Sid. That's called, uh, I can't, verif- I can't uh, vouch for this book. I have literally never read it. It was just the title that stuck out to me. It, it painted a picture. It's um, The Church, A Pilgrim of, of the, Through the Centuries. Um, anyway, that was just an interesting, I think it's Thomas Molnar, if I'm not mistaken. I may be wrong. But um, I've never actually read it, so don't tell me if, tell me if it's wrong or good. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't need to belabor these points, I guess. I just want to raise our vision. I just want us to see more concretely, our hope in Christ, our destiny as the church. Because when we are possessed and transformed according to the way the Bible describes us, the way the word of God has declared us to be, when our identity is taken from that place, the kingdom will come. It increases in the earth. His word made manifest in each and every one of us, increasingly so. And it's very contagious because it's hopeful. It's the only hope. And it's what man who has eternity placed in his heart longs after. That is a hope worth sharing. That is a vision worth giving. That is a mission and life worth living. To God be the glory, but unity is a promise. It's a covenantal promise. And the world will never have it. So leave the world. Flee harlot Babylon. <laughs> leave the world. Flee harlot Babylon. Come into the kingdom of the king of the universe. The king of kings and lord of lords. May he forever be exalted and may we ever find ourselves in increasing unity before him and maturity. Amen. Amen.